This is a Federal News Network podcast. Like a pile of pickup sticks, the Biden administration's contractor vaccine mandate has collapsed in a heap. Or has it? After a slew of state lawsuits and unfavorable court decisions, the administration won't enforce the mandate, but that doesn't end the matter necessarily. Joining me with what might come next, the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau. And David, as you see it, this thing is not really over and dead and buried by any means, is it? Tom, I love talking with you, and thanks for having me on this morning, because exactly that. Uh, The Southern District Court, the Federal District Court of Southern Georgia, issued an injunction that uh, enjoined enforcement of the contract clause and, in fact, the executive order itself. Uh, But it did not prevent the government from continuing to insert the contract language into new contracts or into existing contracts as a so-called bilateral modification. And the guidance that has subsequently been issued both by OMB, an unsigned document that we actually got from a reporter, and I don't even know if it's on a website yet, uh, but it has been issued across OMB, as well as guidance from uh, GSA and from DOD uh, to the to the agencies, tells them to continue putting the clause in new contracts and task orders, in extensions and modifications, and in through bilateral modifications where appropriate into existing contracts. It does, however, tell them to include language when they do that that says we're not enforcing it. So we're putting it in, we're not enforcing. This, by the way, is fairly common practice because the government anticipates it has already filed an appeal. The the ruling was last week and the appeal was two days later. Uh, It has already filed an appeal. It is anticipating that the injunction will be uh, changed or modified or reversed, and uh, and then they can begin enforcing it uh, immediately. Basically, then, what they've done is put a wrapper of dynamite sticks around everybody and saying... Keep this on. We just won't light the fuse yet. Uh, well, <laughs> there, there, there is that aspect to it. And of course, there's no change in the deadline as of now. The deadline is still January 18th uh, for uh, for all personnel to be either vaccinated or to have an accommodation improved or to be entered into some kind of process where similar to federal civilians, they would be educated and counseled and, and persuaded eventually to, to be vaccinated. In the meantime, of course, uh, contracting officers aren't necessarily just sticking to only that, right? There's still lots of, of requests from contracting officers that we hear of that are not consistent with the guidance, not consistent with the contract language. Um, for instance, a contracting officer might say, I need a list of all your people who are vaccinated and which vaccines they got and when they got them. Well, the guidance clearly says you're not supposed to be asking for that if you're a contracting officer. But that hasn't stopped a lot of contracting officers from doing it. Plus, if they can enforce this clause later, is there any notion yet that's clear of what enforcement will actually look like? No, there's not. There's no clear top-down guidance of enforcement. And and PSC has argued on behalf of our members that, in fact, there should be guidance that goes to contracting officers. Um, We think that they really that guidance should include here's what you can do and what you can't do. The guidance is in the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force guidance on the website and in the FAQs. But we all know, Tom, that contracting officers are quite busy and not all of them are gonna get up every morning and look to see if there are any new or updated FAQs in, in the guidance. And so it's incumbent on the companies to backtrack all this and to help keep it in line. On top of that, completely separate from the FAR clause and the contract language in the executive order itself, is the question of access to government facilities. 
where you know each agency, GSA and DOD in particular, has sent out guidance that says you make these determinations and the determinations of whether you have to have vaccinations in order to come in and what constraints might be there actually varies depending on the case rate within the county, whether it's moderate or low or substantial or high, and it can change without warning in terms of requirements. Not only that, it extends overseas where the contract clause for vaccinations doesn't even apply. So it's a very complicated work environment for anybody who's in the federal services business. We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And just switching gears here, I want to get to the Senate NDAA, which presumably is the same as the House one that was passed because they had the reconciliation before the votes. And so... You're happy with how it looks, presuming it gets to well, be enacted in, within a few days? Right. So the, the the Senate, of course, could not agree on taking up its own version of the bill. So the staff and the, and the committees conferenced it without an official conference committee having been named. And a, a revised version was passed by the House last week, and we expect it to be un- undertaken by the Senate this week. A lot fell out, Tom. A lot of things fell out through of it, uh, and we're still parsing through what's missing because They'll give you a list of what's in it, but they don't give you a list of what came out. So you actually have to go back and compare them against the previous versions of the bill that are there. Um, One of the things that did fall out, which we were happy to see, was a reinstatement of the so-called blacklisting uh, clause language, which would essentially enable a complaint to be filed, even if it's spurious and could cause a suspension and debarment of a com- of a contractor uh, simply because of uh, accusation of, of fair labor practices uh, violations. As you know, PSC has supported for many years the proper use of the Labor Department's Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, uh, OFCCP, to uh, to enforce those uh, those rules, which you know are in everybody's contract and companies comply with uh, diligently across the board. But um, OFCCP doesn't actually have enough staff. So uh, what this attempted to do was put contracting officers in the role of enforcing labor laws. And we actually think that the Labor Department should be in, in the role of enforcing labor laws. So we were happy to see that fall out. Yeah, there's uh, a trend here both when we were talking about the vaccine mandate and also this non-existent now blacklisting clause, the idea of putting more and more and more responsibility for peripheral issues on contracting officers. Contracting officers and, of course, on the companies. Uh, and, and companies who, who do federal contracting are very good at complying, right? I mean, the FAR is full of rules that you have to comply with. And these are often terms and conditions that are incorporated by reference. They're not actually even spelled out in your contract. So you really have to know uh, what you're complying with as you go forward and and report on that. Um, Putting that burden on contracting officers who are already overworked and and, uh, and too thin in numbers um, and perhaps not fully trained in those areas and on the companies themselves uh, does add responsibility, it adds costs, and it adds time. Nonetheless, the federal government, of course, does have the, the right to require its contractors to be better than the average company. And from PSC's experience, our member companies actually are better than the average company. And then anything new on the non-displacement of contractor employees when the incumbency changed? We spoke with Stephanie Castro about this a couple weeks ago. This is something else that impinges on the contracting officer-company relationship, too. Uh, but that's an executive order that's kind of floating there. And it's a repeat. It's a deja vu from, you know, 2009, 2010, the original uh, executive order uh, uh, essentially giving 
and in a, a new company who just beat an incumbent, uh, a unilateral right to first right of refusal to hire all the losing companies, the incumbent companies, employees, even if, in fact, the pay is lower and the benefits are less, which is often what they've done in order to win that contract. Right? We think this is unfair to the companies who've invested in, in recruiting and training and promoting and retaining uh, those workers. We think it's unfair to the workers because they're going to be captive of a uh, different set of pay and benefits. And because the way contracts are often awarded, it'll be less pay and fewer benefits. And we think it flies in the face of, in fact, giving the government what it really needs. The government's hiring a contractor. They're not hiring people through a contractor. The contractor is responsible for the companies. Now, as I said, this is deja vu. It was in the FAR for a number of years. It, it uh, was eliminated in the previous administration. It's now come back in again. We expect an interim rule, FAR rule, Federal Acquisition Regulation rule to be issued and a comment period to ensue. We're preparing to provide those comments along with comments on a host of other executive orders, climate change, zero emissions, uh, et cetera. You know, it's a robust environment for PSC to be representing our members through the official comments process and the unofficial comments process as well. And just one other comment on that non-displacement rule. I mean, as a practical matter, companies often do take on people from the previous incumbent, but that should be left to the fluidity of the dynamic marketplace, in other words, and not to an executive order stating you've got to have this whole apparatus for taking on those people. Absolutely. And it takes away the freedom of choice of the workers to decide who they want to work for and where they want to work. It basically gives them uh, fewer choices and, and less mobility, uh, which given the current state of the economy and the fact that we still have more jobs than we have workers, that's not going to go well for the federal government, I don't think. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. You're welcome, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. 57 past the hour. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, 
I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day and I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you use to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and... Um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment 
with uh, with backup and and guidance like that. What what great great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Will you and everyone you work with lose their minds if you don't use Upwork to bring in more talent to help? Yep. Can you afford to spend months finding that talent the old-fashioned way? Nope. Can you hire them in seconds on Upwork? Yep. Is it complicated? Nope. Can you have them as long as you need? Yep. Longer than you need? Nope. Is Upwork a newer, better way to work? Yep. Is this commercial over? Nope. What about now? Yep. Upwork. This is how we work now. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.